Romans chapter 3, continuing our way through the text this morning, verses 28 to 32. Before we jump into Romans chapter 3, I thought I might mention to you by way of introduction the Moravians. The Moravians. You probably don't know much about the Moravians or the Moravian church, but I thought I would just tell you a little bit about them this morning by way of illustrating the text that we are about to consider. The Moravian, the term, the name Moravian identifies the fact that this historic church had its origins in ancient Bohemia and Moravia, which is basically the present-day Czech Republic. In the mid-9th century, so before the the turn of the millennium, in the mid-9th century, these countries in this region of the world were brought to faith in Christianity primarily through the influence of two Greek Orthodox missionaries known known as Cyril and Methodius. They translated the Bible into the common language, and they introduced the people who lived there to Christ. In the centuries that followed, Bohemia and Moravia gradually fell in time. They fell under the oppressive and authoritarian control of the Roman Catholic Church. Despite that influence, the Czech people continued to protest. The Moravian Church continued to lift up the truth of faith in Christ. The most famous of the Czech reformers in response to the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church was a man named John Huss, who lived from 1369 to 1415. He he was a full hundred years ahead of Luther's time. Martin Luther, you'll recall, nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg in uh, 1517, and uh, obviously this is a hundred years before that, 1415. John Huss led a protest movement against many of the practices of the Roman Catholic clergy, and specifically the papal hierarchy in itself. Of course, as was the case with most protesters in that time, in that part of the world, he was accused of heresy, and he underwent a long trial at the Council of Constance, and eventually he was burned at the stake, again, his life coming to a tragic end on July 6, 1415. The Moravian Church, in the aftermath of this execution, went through intense persecution by the Roman Catholic Church. And as a result of that persecution, the Moravian Church slowly began to dwindle in numbers as people were martyred, as others went into hiding underground. And eventually, the Moravian Church became almost invisible. It was still there, but not clearly seen. Well, a couple of hundred years later... Uh, the 1700s saw the revival of the Moravian Church with the, benef- uh, with the blessing and, and uh, with the generosity of a man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. See, I stutter and take my time to practice that name in my head before I say it out loud. Zinzendorf, he established a community on his estate in 1722, and Moravians from all across the Czech Republic fled there for shelter, and they began a church community known as Hernhut. And this new community became the haven for many, many other Moravian refugees. 
But the real reason I mentioned to you the Moravians this morning is that as this community began to flourish and grow under Count Zinzendorf's leadership, they began to flay, he began to preach a series of sermons from the book of Revelation, and he began to call upon the Moravian church to fan into flame a white-hot passion for the worship of Jesus Christ. And as he taught them about worshiping Jesus Christ and giving their lives to Christ and delighting in Christ, as he began to teach them these things, he began to see certain trends in the book of Revelation. And in fact, it was a series of sermons that he preached from Revelation chapter 5 and verses 9 to 10, in which Count Zinzendorf began to encourage the Moravians that they could see more of the beauty of Christ, that they could see more of the excellency of who he was if they would make it their mission to take the good news of Jesus Christ to far-flung cultures and countries and nations beyond the shores of what is the modern-day Czech Republic. He encouraged them to do that. You might be wondering this morning, what was that text? What was that passage from Revelation that Count Zinzendorf began to preach in, in which he began to fan into flame this vision for the Moravian church to take the gospel to the far, farthest flung corners of the world? It was Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, in which the Apostle John has this vision of the Lamb of God being worshipped. The elders are bowing down before the throne, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and this passage in particular, by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here is a church that has been just about battered and bludgeoned into non-existence. And Count Zinzendorf rises up with this text and he says, are you discouraged? Get on that ship and get to the farthest corner of the earth and start preaching the gospel. Because Jesus has purchased people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He has purchased them. And it's our job to go and find them and to share the good news with them. Now, this is a very important point for us to start at this morning, because this seems to be the heart of the Apostle Paul in what he is saying here in Romans chapter 3. You'll recall as we started this chapter and as we began to work our way through it, that the Apostle Paul is arguing back and forth with an imaginary Jewish sort of debate partner. It's as though there's a Jewish guy there saying, whoa, 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 uh, first off, I don't believe in this Messiah that you're talking about, but secondly, if he is the Messiah, this Jesus whom you proclaim, well, he belongs to the Jews. He's our Messiah, and, and this whole gospel message that you're preaching where we just place our faith in Jesus and that alone has the power for salvation, it goes against and it contradicts everything that we've been taught for the last two millennia walking with Christ walking with God by faith. It contradicts the, the Mosaic law and it throws out the window all of our Jewish tradition. And you're even going so far as to saying they don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to become Jewish. And that just is radically different than everything we've been led to believe. And Paul has been arguing his way all the way through that that is, in fact, the truth of what God is doing. 
And he makes this statement here in verse 28. He says, we hold, notice that, he says, we hold that salvation is by faith. That's the first thing he says. We hold that one is justified by faith. Your justification before God comes as a result of your faith, he says, and it has nothing to do with works of the law. In fact, the Greek word he uses here, he says it's apart from. In other words, he he imagines that the works of the law, keeping the Mosaic Covenant, is over here on one side and faith is over here on the other side. He says these are two different things. They are separated from each other. They are kept apart from each other. And salvation comes not as a result of works of the law, but by faith apart from works of the law. He says we hold to that. And that's what you and I must hold to today. Now, that statement has been said multiple times throughout, Revel- throughout Romans chapter 3, but the argument that he makes here as he's concluding this chapter is particularly poignant. Notice what he says here. He says, or, this is a rhetorical question in verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? The implication being that as the Jews are looking at God and looking at their history of walking with God, going all the way back to the Exodus, going all the way back to Abraham, they have seen time and again God perform amazing miracles and delivering the nation of Israel. And their thought is, okay, we are supposed to be a kingdom of priests to God, but that means that this nation, the Jewish nation, is to be a kingdom of priests. And if people want to have a relationship with God, then they need to become Jewish, and they need to get circumcised, and they need to subscribe to the Mosaic law. And Paul says, no, salvation is by faith apart from the law. And oh, by the way, he says, God isn't just your God. He's everyone's God. And the Jews would not necessarily have disagreed with that, but their response would have been, Yeah, he's everyone's God, but he has made it clear that salvation comes through being Jewish. That's what God has made clear. And now what Paul is about to do is to say, your whole identity, your whole heritage, going all the way back to Abraham, is understood to be a salvation by faith, not the Mosaic law. That's what he's going to begin to unpack in Romans chapter 4, which we will see next time. But he makes this really powerful concluding statement. He says, do you really think God is only your God? Obviously, he is not. Paul goes on. He says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? And Paul says, yes. He is the God of the Gentiles also. And then he makes this statement, God is one, and God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So you have Jews on one hand, and you've got Gentiles, this this Greek word ethne used on the other side to differentiate between these two categories. You have the Jewish nation. These are the individuals who are of the line of Abraham, born to Abraham's line. They're circumcised. They keep the Mosaic law. They do all these things. They have the temple. They have uh, all of the re- religious sacrifice and ritual that goes with temple worship and temple observance. You got these guys on one side, and then you have ethne, or as it's translated here, Gentiles, which is in this line of argument to suggest everybody who's not a Jew, which might mean everybody else, 
So you have the Jews here, and then you have the Gentiles there. You have this nation here, and you have other people over there. And what Paul is saying is that God is God to both. He is God of all. And all are to be saved by faith. And in order to make this explicitly clear, he says that the circumcised, he, he, he substitutes a synonym here. So you have the Jews, and he clearly identifies them as Jews. And then in the very next verse, he substitutes a synonym for Jews. He calls them circumcised. He says the circumcised will be saved by faith, and the uncircumcised, you'll see that, the uncircumcised is a synonym now for Gentiles. The uncircumcised will be saved through faith. Now, you might be saying to yourself, what is that all about? That seems rather significant. I think we go too far to press too much of a meaning on these prepositions. The Jews would say that they had faith in God. They had all these rituals that they had been given, sacrifices, temple worship, etc. And that it was their faith in God that led them to do these things, and they were saved by these things. Meaning their doing of those works was the instrument that God used to save them. And so Paul demolishes that by saying, it isn't the things you're doing by which you are saved, it is the faith by which you are saved. And then contrasting that with the Gentiles or the uncircumcised, he uses those words interchangeably, he says they will be saved through faith, meaning they don't have any faith in God. They're not walking with the Lord. You have all these things from God. You think the doing of those things is the means by which you are saved. It isn't. It is your relationship with God. But you will be saved by faith. That is the means by which you will be saved, not the things you're doing. Whereas the Gentiles, the ethne, the nations, they will be saved through faith. So we're not going to draw too much of a distinction here. Suffice it to say that between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, between the Jews and the Gentiles, the path to salvation is through faith. Now here's where I want to pause for a moment and really reflect on this question. Ethne the nations, or Gentiles, or uncircumcised. There is in this passage a radical focus on individual faith that is clearly present. A radical focus on individual faith that is completely separate from works. And at the same time, there is within this passage, a clear understanding of God's pursuit of all the peoples of the world. You have faith, and then you have God's pursuing of everyone, which leads to a question. Why, in God's general providence, that is, in His guiding of human history, is the world so thoroughly composed of such different types of people or people groups? Why do we have ethnicities and different cultures and different tribes and different nations? Why, in God's plan of salvation and in the way He has been working in history, why does His plan involve such a concern for so many different people? 
We might ask the question this way, why didn't God actually just make us all Jewish from birth, and that way we would only have one singular problem to struggle with, whether or not to be loyal to the Mosaic law or to be loyal to Jesus Christ? You see, that struggle still persists to this day. You have people who are Jewish who struggle with whether or not to trust in Jesus or whether or not to stay loyal to the Mosaic laws, their means of salvation. But now you have all other kinds of countries as well. For example, here in Canada, we are all secular humanists. We believe in evolution. We think we all came from single-celled organisms and that there's no ultimate meaning to our life but to have as much fun as we possibly can and to live for pleasure because when we die, it's all over the end. This is a distinct people group with at least two languages, French and English. Both of those languages point back to a history and a culture, and these cultures are radically different cultures, and as we see in Quebec, at odds with each other. We are not Jewish. What is the struggle for us to come to faith as Canadians? How is that struggle different than the struggle that the Jews have in terms of wrestling with their observance of the law versus having faith in Jesus? And why is God doing it this way? These are important questions that we should wrestle with. And as we think about our evangelism strategy, and as we think about what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 3, we need to wrestle with exactly what God is doing when he says he is going to bring from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group people to praise the Son to worship Jesus Christ. What is that all about? We start off with this expression, ethne, Gentiles. If we're going to understand what God is doing, we need to understand exactly who he's talking about when he talks about the ethne or the Gentiles or the uncircumcised, whichever term you want to insert there. Many, many years ago, I can remember sitting at my parents' table eating dinner and my parents pulling out the bulletin from the last Sunday worship service and looking at the prayer requests on that bulletin, and there would be different missionaries, and we were called to pray for those missionaries, and we were also called to pray for the mission field in which those missionaries were laboring. And I would never have thought at that time, as a, as a grade two, grade one kid growing up, if you were to say to me, don't pray for the field, pray for the people's. I would have thought, well, I just had this spelling, this word on my spelling list last week, and people is already plural. It's grammatically incorrect to put an S on the end of it and make it peoples. That's just silly. Why would we pray that way? That doesn't even make any kind of grammatical sense. We pray for the field. We don't pray for peoples. But all of this started to change, and it was actually starting to change before I was even born. Back in the 70s, early 70s, in 1974, Ralph Winter, a missiologist, dropped a bomb at the Lausanne Congress of World Evangelization in Switzerland. And he went on to argue at that time, in 1974, that there were 24,000 peoples in the world and as many as 17,000 of those peoples were still unreached with no gospel presentation. And what was interesting was in 1974, the church was taking great pride in itself for having established a church in every single continent and in every single country of the world. Patting ourselves on the back in 1974, Ralph Winter stood up and said, we've got a problem here. We may have a church on every continent and in every nation, but we don't have a church for every 
people, and there are many thousands of peoples with no church and no gospel presence. It never occurred to most people 60 years ago that when the phrase Shequetmec Nation was used in describing the Shequetmec people here in British Columbia, that we were actually far closer to biblical categories of thought than when we spoke of the nation, for example, of Germany or the nation of Japan. But over the last 60 years, there has been a seismic shift, an alteration in the way we talk about and in the way we conceptualize missions thinking. We're talking about peoples, and a nation is not merely the geopolitical area that a particular group of people inhabit. It is not defined by national or international borders. It is defined by a common language. It is defined by a common culture. And there is a particular group of people who oftentimes will go across international boundaries but are still of a particular people who need to hear the gospel. This is clearly taught in Scripture. We begin again with this expression, pantata ethne, all the nations. It's the phrase that we find in Matthew 28, 19, in which Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples. He says, go and make disciples of pantata ethne, all the nations. Sometimes people will say that ethne, just by its lexical meaning, just by the, the definition that you look at when you look in the dictionary, it means different ethnic groups. But again, when we look at this word used in context in Scripture, that is usually correct, but not always. It may also refer simply to non-Jewish individuals, which is how Paul is using it here in Romans 3. And this is where the struggle comes in for you and me. When Paul says, is God just a God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles, the ethne of the world? Is he just saying that basically we need to take the gospel to people who are not Jewish? If that's what Paul is saying, then guess what, guys? Mission accomplished. We have taken the gospel to a whole bunch of people who are not Jewish. But is that all that Paul had in mind? Does this word mean something more? And indeed, I think it does. And I think it has to as we look at what God is saying to us in his word. To understand God's purposes in the meaning of this phrase, pantata ethne, just look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, where the four living creatures and the 24 elders are falling down before the Lamb of God. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He makes it clear in the way that he uses those things that it isn't just some tribes, it isn't some people, it isn't some nations, it's everyone every nation, every tribe. I could stop there, but the text actually gets more specific. What makes this passage so powerful is that it correlates the design of our missions and our evangelism with the design of the atonement. Christ didn't just die for a particular ethnicity, the Jews. He died for all ethnicities. And so our missionary enterprise and our, our evangelistic calling has to be obedient to that focus and that goal. We're not just here to reach white, middle-class, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. We're here to reach all people. 
We're not just here to reach people who speak the same way that I speak. We're here to reach people who speak in all different types of languages. It's difficult. Recently, a family moved to uh, Kamloops from Nigeria, and they enrolled their little boy in our school. His name is Mofe. He speaks English, but it's with such an accent, and he speaks so fast, I cannot understand him. Now, I could be quick to dismiss Mofe and just say, you're African-American, you're not white like me. You're Nigerian, you come with your own particular cultural customs in terms of the food you like to eat, in terms of the things you like to do. He enjoys soccer. Soccer. (laughs) I'm an American football man myself. I said to him, do you like football? He says, I love football. And at first I thought we had something. He was using the word football in a totally different way. Of course, it took me a few minutes just to make sure I was understanding that he was actually using the word football, the way that his accent was inflecting his use of the word. Does God love Mofe? You bet he does. Did God die for Mofe? He surely did. I struggle to understand his language, his, his dialect, the inflection that he uses. I'm sure to tell you that there are certain types of food he enjoys, which I'm not sure I would enjoy. And in terms of personal space, Africans don't have personal space, as far as I can tell. They just are right up on you, hugging you and kissing you and all over you, and certain things which if a Canadian were walking by on the street would be convinced something illegal was happening. It's like, oh man, somebody's watching me, you know, come on, get off of me, kid, you're trying to push him away. But all of this is an expression of love for me. But our culture wouldn't see it that way. Revelation chapter 5 says that God died to ransom a people from all tribes, all nations, all ethne, pantata ethne. But let's go back and let's see where this all began. It began in Genesis chapter 12. God sets this whole thing in motion by making a promise to a particular man. He chooses one man. He chooses from that one man to make one people. And he does all of this with a view through that people to reaching the nations. That's not the way you and I would do it. That's the way God does it. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you, I also will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the word families used there. All families. This promise is repeated four different times in Genesis to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, again in Genesis chapter 22, again in Genesis chapter 26, and again in Genesis chapter 28. Over and over again, God is saying, in you, I'm going to make a great nation, a nation, an ethne, and in you, all families will be blessed. Abraham is going to have children. Those children are going to have children. We're talking about one man having a family of people who come from him biologically. And God calls that group of people not a large family. He could have called it that. But instead, he says they're a nation. And he says, in this nation, all other families 
are going to be blessed. So just based on that exegesis of Genesis, we could say if you're born to someone, if you're a child of someone, God loves you because you're a part of a family somewhere, somehow God brought you into this earth as a result of your mother and your father. And that makes you a part of a family that he has created. And therefore he loves you. And he sends Jesus to die for you because he's going to ransom somebody from every family. But look at how Paul uses this term in Galatians, arguing with these churches that he had planted in Galatia, which were primarily Gentile, that's you and me, primarily Gentile, and what is modern-day Turkey. So these are not Jews. These are going to be Turkish people. He says to them, why are you guys getting circumcised? Why are you adhering to the Mosaic law? Why, essentially, are you becoming Jewish? And he makes this statement going back to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the ethne, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations, pantata ethne, be blessed. So we have good contextual justification for treating this phrase, pantata ethne, as a reference to all people groups, all peoples, everyone. But we won't stop there. Look at what Paul says just here in the book of Romans itself. We'll get there in like six or seven or eight years, but in Romans chapter 15, when we get to the end of the book, Paul is talking about the fact that he has no more room for ministry left in certain parts, that he's going to Spain because he's hopeful that there will be some people there who have not yet heard the gospel, and he wants to go reach those people with the good news of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 15, 9, that the Jewish Messiah came into the world, quote, in order that the Gentiles, the ethne, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. Then he weaves together a number of Old Testament texts from the law, the Psalms, and the prophets in order to show how Paul, how he himself would have understood God's calling on his life in sending Jesus Christ and now in sending Paul in order to redeem, to ransom from all peoples, a particular people, to praise God. Perhaps the most important thing to me was this quote that Paul uses in that chapter. This is what really grabbed my heart. Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord. He's quoting In terms of justifying his commission as an apostle, he quotes Psalm 117, which says, praise the Lord, all nations. In other words, all the nations of the world are to praise God. Everywhere there's an international boundary, every person in that international boundary is to praise God. At least that's how we would read it through our 21st century lens. But the psalm goes on in what is known as Hebrew parallelism, in which the second line of the psalm is a parallel to the first line and is intended to explain it. So it says, praise the Lord, all nations, pantata ethne, praise the Lord, all nations, and let all the peoples worship him. Are you a person? Are you amongst a group of people? Then God's desire for you is that you would worship God. The call of the Apostle Paul then 
is not to go and plant a church in Spain, not to go and plant a church in Rome, but to go and reach a particular group of people in Spain, to go and reach a particular group of people in Rome, and to do so across all people groups, whether they speak this kind of a dialect or whether they speak that kind of a dialect, whether they come from this particular culture or whether they're from another kind of culture, we see here in Canada, just in terms of the English-speaking people of Canada and the French-speaking people of Canada, two distinct cultures, two distinct people groups, and God loves both of them and wants the gospel to come to both of them. And Paul says God's desire is that all peoples would worship Him. So it's against this biblical backdrop of Revelation 5 and Genesis 12 and Galatians 3 and even here in Romans 15 that we can make the conclusion today confidently that in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 in which Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, panta ta ethne, that what he was really saying was go and find every people group every individual person you can from whatever family, whatever tribe, whatever tongue, and reach them with the gospel. That's what God is saying to us. That is what Jesus is commanding us to do. Now, this is very important for a couple of reasons. Why all this talk about going to each individual people group? Here within Kamloops, we have multiple people groups. And I'm not even talking about your traditional ethnic understanding. I mean, we do have multiple ethnicities here in Kamloops. We've got people from Africa, America. Or we've got people from Africa who are African Canadians. We've got people from uh, India. We've got people from Australia. We've got people from China. We've got people from Japan. We've got people from all over the world right here. But you know what else? We also have other kinds of people groups. We've got the skaters. We do. It's a culture unto itself. Just go to the skate park if you don't believe me. It's a culture that lives on a skateboard. And as a result, 99% of us are going to find it nearly impossible to integrate into that culture. You can get a helmet. You can put tattoos on your body. You know, you can try to talk the slang lingo that they talk, but until they see you doing a half pipe, they're probably not going to pay a whole lot of attention to you. But I guarantee you this. If we could get Pastor Al turning tricks on a half pipe, (laughs) they would stop and listen to whatever that man had to say. We have people groups. We have the skaters. We have the seniors. We have the young moms, the young dads. We have the empty nesters. We have the nearly newlyweds. We have those individuals who are retiring. All along the different spectrums of life, we have distinct people groups that have particular concerns, particular interests, and they are unique. And we have an intersection not only of where you're at in life, but then on top of that, what culture you come from. I come from Texas. In Texas, we just have this mentality, and it's not righteous. It's not all the way righteous. Let me put it that way. 
in which we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It causes us to be very independent, very proud, self-interested, self-absorbed people. I don't like something, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to do something about it. In a way, that's good. In Canada, I don't like something, I'm going to moan and complain to my government to fix it. Most of us have seen that that doesn't really work too well because the government has ideas of their own. They moan and complain about how the constituents won't vote for their crazy plans. Whereas in Texas, everybody's like, lock and load, baby. I don't like what I see. I'm just going to give me my gun. Very different cultures. So some of you in this, in this room, you're 40 years of age. I'm about 40 years of age. We're at the same life cycle. We have probably kids, you and I. But you're from somewhere here in Western Canada, and I'm from the great, wonderful state of Texas. And so even though we have a lot in common, we filter and we interpret certain events through a radically different lens as a result of our upbringing. We are unique peoples. Again, why do I talk about all of this? I have talked a good bit this morning about the nations and peoples and tribes and families and languages. Why do I do this? I do this because the Bible does this. We see this in the scriptures. We see it here in Romans chapter 3. But in saying all of these things, which are completely true, we all need to be aware of the great danger in doing this. Namely, that we get so caught up in our focus on people groups that we lose touch with a crucially essential biblical truth. So let us declare that truth today from Romans chapter 3. And that truth is this. There is only one way to be saved, and that is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So in a sense, where you come from matters, what cycle of life you're in matters, whether you've got kids, whether you're an empty nester, whether you speak French, whether you speak English, whether you're white, whether you're black, these things matter. The scriptures do not compress all of us down into a flat, homogenous, singular group of people. The scriptures acknowledge and affirm we are all unique individuals, but there is only one way to salvation. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. The path towards redemption lies in the cross of Jesus Christ. Whatever your culture is, whatever language you speak, whatever your favorite food is, wherever you're going, whatever restaurant you're going to hit up after church today, you can know this. When you meet that waitress or that waiter at that restaurant, wherever they're from, whatever country they're from, whatever cycle of life they're in, they need Jesus. Just like you and I need Jesus. The truth that we're here to declare today is that there is only one spiritual organ by which we can be saved, and that is the organ of faith, which resides in every single individual human soul. Families and tribes and peoples and nations do not have an organ of faith. The place where the miracle of the new birth happens within this fallen world is inside the individual human soul. Passing from death to life through the divine gift of saving faith 
happens only in the human soul, or as it's often called in Scripture, the heart. There is no other organ of saving faith. So you live in Canada. Canada historically has been a Christian country. Ipso facto, you're a Christian. I don't think so. Whatever the people group, whatever the nation, whatever the tribe, whatever the family, the miracle of going from death to life, from being a child of wrath to becoming a new creation in Christ, that miracle happens in every individual singular human heart. It does not happen in people groups, it does not happen in tribes, and it does not happen in nations. It happens heart to heart from one person to the next, as we communicate the gospel, and as the Holy Spirit shines light upon that truth, enabling that individual to believe in Jesus Christ. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. No one can see the light of the glory of God in Christ on behalf of someone else. I cannot believe for you. You must believe. I can tell you all the good things about Jesus Christ, and you can hear that, and you can understand it, and you can know it's true intellectually, but it will all come across as some sort of wonderful history lesson. If you would believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit must illuminate him as a real person who has come to you, and then you must choose to yield your life into his hands. It must be a personal decision. You come to church, you say, I attend First Baptist Church, and Pastor Joshua Claycamp is my pastor people say this, and I don't know where they are at in their faith, and when we have conversations, we talk about the weather, we talk about the fact that I'm from Texas, we talk about the fact that I love American football, we bemoan the fact that the Dallas Cowboys never seem to win, and we never talk about Christ, yet by virtue of the fact that they attend here, by virtue of the fact that they listen to me preach, they will claim a personal relationship with God. I have nothing to do with it. And I cannot believe for you. I'm glad you're here. But you must know Christ. You must know him. This means that as we think about evangelism as a church, you're here, you're like, okay, great. I'm I'm tracking with you, preacher. Where is all this going? For us as First Baptist Church, do you want to reach the skaters? One person does. (laughs) Praise God. It's a hard group to, to reach. I take my daughters there. They have bikes. They want to ride on the skate park. Man, there's no way I can reach those guys with my girls there. Just some of the things they say and the filth. And I got too much unpacking to do afterwards with my kids. They're like, Dad, when this kid said, you know, it's a long string of expletives, I'm like, stop saying that. What does that mean? I'm like, no, no. Like, we don't want to go there. I cannot turn tricks on a half pipe. But if I could, they might listen to me. So do you want to reach the skaters? Well, you need to go out and start looking at skateboards. Do you have to have a skateboard to reach the skaters? Can God win the skaters? Yeah, he surely can. He surely can. Can God win the seniors? Yeah, he surely can. Does it help? When one senior speaks to another senior, yes, it surely does. You see, there's something here in the scriptures which is affirmed, that there is a relationship that is established amongst different people groups. That's why the scriptures talk about it. Does God need people groups to reach people groups? No. 
Does God sometimes work through people groups to reach other people who are a part of that people group? Yes. We must affirm two things which are completely true from Scripture. God desires to reach people from every people group. And there is something about being a part of that people group that immediately earns you more credibility and an audience with people who are a part of that people group. But by the same token, no matter how much you and that person may have in common, you can never believe on behalf of that person. Paul in Romans chapter 3 says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. And we are all, he says in chapter 3 verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. You receive Christ when you believe in him. I cannot believe for you. For us as a church, this means a couple of things. For the last almost 40 years now, the primary method of evangelism which has dominated churches is known as the seeker-sensitive method. And the idea there, pioneered first by a church in Chicago and then by another one that's quite famous in in California, the idea that is pioneered there is that we are going to organize and all of our ministries are going to be centrally understood and organized around reaching people from the neighborhood in order that they can come and believe in Jesus Christ. So our worship services are going to become largely evangelistic. Every single message that is preached is going to be gospel-focused, and we're going to try to reach the neighborhood We're going to show ourselves to be friendly. We're going to try to dress like those people in our neighborhood. We're going to try to act like them. They ought to be able to see us and see that we're no different than they are. And then by the fact that we're all the same, they will come and they will trust in Jesus Christ. Large crowds have come, but the last 40 years almost have shown us that those large crowds come and they do not believe in Jesus Christ. We're great at looking at the people groups and trying to make ourselves look similar to the people we're trying to reach, but we never get down to the business of sharing the gospel and actually proclaiming Christ. And their whole understanding then of Christianity is, I'm a Christian because I go to Saddleback Community Church, or I go to Willow Creek. And I fear, maybe even for some of us here, I'm a Christian just because I go to First Baptist You must believe in Christ. But then the second thing that we need to understand, we're not going to tailor everything around here in order to welcome people in. We must go to them, as Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 28. Go to the nations or people groups. Panta ta ethne. So we must go to them. Again, we've been so influenced by the last 30, almost 40 years now of what we have perceived to be success out of places like Saddleback or Willow Creek. They're drawing these huge numbers and building these humongous churches. Never mind the fact that a $30 million church drives that church $30 million into debt. But we see these massive buildings. We don't understand the underlying loans and budgetary constraints. We just see these massive things and we think, oh, they're being successful. Look at all these people that are coming. And we try to implement those things here. We say, okay, we're not going to just have everything be tailored around reaching the unreached. We're still going to preach the gospel. We're still going to go through books of the Bible exegetically, but let's have outreach programs. We're going to gather together 
and we're going to go and we're going to go into this neighborhood and we're going to knock on doors and we're going to hang flyers and uh, we're going to try to invite these people to come to church. Some people come. We say, oh, that's great, they came. But did they hear the gospel? Sure, I preach it every Sunday, but I don't tailor every single sermon to every single type of person that might walk through these doors. The needs of a first-time visiting senior and what they're needing to hear from the Lord Jesus is going to be different than somebody who walks in off the street who is struggling with addiction and has just completed a 12-step program. We deceive ourselves when we say, all I got to do, I'll go out. We're not going to turn this into a seeker-sensitive thing. I'll just go out and I'll do the door knockers and I'll knock on doors and I'll hand out invitations to church left, right, and center and people will come and then my responsibility is over. I have fulfilled my obligation to Jesus. This is not true. It is heart to heart, individual to individual, which means that when we have a first-time guest come through the door on a Sunday morning, and we've been averaging about 15 first-time guests going back to Easter, I love you. If you're here this morning, your first-time guest, you're about to get bamboozled. I still love you. If you're here this morning, if, you, if we have a first-time guest who comes to this church, you guys should be all over that first-time guest. And the first-time guests are like headed to the door right now as we speak. You should be saying, hey, I want you to come out and have coffee with me this week. Why? Well, because you're a person. What difference does that make? Well, Jesus died for all peoples. That means he died for you, and I'd love to tell you about him. My conviction is that God decided that the human, part, human heart would be the point where his saving grace would take hold of humanity because the goal of salvation, according to Ephesians 1.6, is that every individual would live for the praise of God's glory. But the essence of praise is not simply moving our lips. Jesus said in Matthew 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The essence of praise and, coincidentally, the essence of saving faith is the admiring gladness of the human heart in the glory of the grace of God, delighting in him to know him and have a personal relationship with him. It isn't simply singing the songs or repeating the lines. It is to know and delight in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is driving at here. Is God just a God of the Jews only? No. And so First Baptist Church, I ask you, is God just the God of your particular life cycle or ethnicity or socioeconomic background? No. He's the God of the skaters. He's the God of the addict. He's the God of the widow. He's the God of the orphan. He is your God. Worship him passionately, but no that as you worship him passionately, he will lead you in love to all kinds of people that look nothing like you. He will. And you say, why? I think that the reason why God sends us out 
to tell the world of him is because he is a jewel that he intends to be turned in the light. When we look at the Lord, we see him, and he is beautiful to us. But he is also beautiful to so many other different kinds of people. And as we consider other people from other cultures, and we consider how they look at the Lord and the way that they see him, it's as though that diamond who is Jesus is being turned, and he's casting sparkles all across the room in a rainbow-colored piece of art. We see him, and he is beautiful, and he captures us, and we worship him. But we see him from our own vantage point, whereas all the world will see him from all different tribes and every tongue and every nation and every tribe and every language. And we will all worship him together. The Moravians were sent out by Count Zinzendorf. They headed from North Germany to the far-flung peoples of the West Indies. They boarded ships to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as they got on those ships, and as they sailed away, never to be heard from, they sang this song. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That every tribe and every tongue and every people may worship him. One historical account says that the Moravians stood at the rails of the decks of these ships as they were sailing away, and they lifted their hands, and they sang this song as they waved goodbye to their loved ones. It was the love and the worship of Christ that moved them to do so. I'm not asking you to leave your families behind, but God might. I'm not asking you to say goodbye to the whole way of life you've known here in Canada, but God might. What we know for sure is that we are called to take the gospel to everyone. Pray with me. Lord in heaven, our prayer this morning is that you would continue to drive that conviction deep in our hearts. Father, there are so many great things we could be doing in terms of outreach and evangelism, but none of it matters if we will not sit down and have a one-on-one personal conversation with someone and tell them about Jesus heart to heart. If there are any here today who know of a loved one or a neighbor who needs the gospel, I pray, God, that you would drive that conviction in their soul, not simply to invite them to church, not simply to start some elaborate outreach plan, but to just go and knock on their door with a cup of coffee in their hand and to tell them the good news of your son and what he's done for us. Drive this truth home into our hearts, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.